Shabbat Shalom, everyone. So I want to tell you what the life of a rabbi is like, in particular when it comes to Shabbat morning. And I'm going to describe it to you by ways of an old Talmudic story. It goes like this. They say that there was a rabbi who lived in the time of the Talmud that on Sunday, as soon as Shabbat was over, when he would go to the market to buy his food, whatever he saw that he thought was particularly tasty and beautiful, he would buy and he would say, I'm going to keep this for Shabbat. And the week would go by each day, obviously, or every other day he'd go to the market and he would find something else invariably that was better than the thing that he had bought that he intended for Shabbat. And then he would say, okay, I'm going to eat what I bought before and now this new thing is going to be the thing that I'm going to save and eat on Shabbat. And the whole week would go that way. So generally what happens is, as soon as Shabbat is over, come Saturday night or Sunday, what's the question I ask myself? What I'm going to talk about next week. And that's essentially what happens all week long. Ideas come and go and run through my head. I had one idea that for sure I was confident that I wanted to share with you on this Shabbat morning. And then I did the worst thing possible. I read the newspaper on Friday. And so what I want to share with you is my reaction to what I read and I think uh, a beautiful perspective that the Torah portion gives not only to this question of what I read in the newspaper, but I think of the larger question that hangs over all of our heads. All right, so this is what I read. I don't know if you caught it too, but... Marie Hennen, who's a, um, a very well-known, highly respected defense attorney, had been invited by the TDSB, that's the Toronto District School Board, to participate in a book club that is geared specifically for high school girls. The reason why she was invited was because Marie Hennen had written a book about her life. And her life as a woman who's a lawyer, a defense attorney, is a provocative, interesting story. Her life and her career experience is also interesting. And uh, she is, um, she's very well known because many of her cases, I know you know, you've seen her name featured prominently on the headlines of many a newspaper in this country. So the date is set for her to have this uh, book club. I assume it was meant to be virtual, but whatever. And uh, about a week or two before the event was supposed to be held, she was informed that it was canceled. And the reason why it was canceled was because both the equity counselors, the equity advisors in the Toronto District School Board, in tandem with a group of girls, of students, had decided that Marie Hennen would not be, or would be disinvited, excuse me, from speaking because she had represented Gian Kameshi. For those of you who have maybe short memories, which is not a bad thing to have these days, by the way, but for those of you who have short memories, you remember that Gian Kameshi was a, uh, was a well-known uh, broadcaster on the CBC. He ran a pop culture style kind of station. He was very into new music trends and all those other things. Subsequently, he was accused of uh, sexual battery and assault by a number of different people. He was represented by Marie Hennen. And over the course of, I think the trial was over a summer, if I remember correctly, uh, I think it was a late July, early August, and uh, it was filling all the newspapers and the broadcast reports. Subsequently, he was found acquitted. He was found not guilty. The reaction that these girls had and these equity advisors 
in the Toronto District School Board was, was part of a broad pattern of what we generally label today as being woke culture. And woke culture speaks that you look and see what people do, and you assign them, assign to them a categorical label. And the horror of this is, is first of all, Jan Gomeshi was found to be innocent. And that is a bedrock principle of the society that we live in. That justice is developed, discussed, debated, it is deliberated, and then it is meted out, and we accept the terms of what the judgment is. So to say that someone is found after going through the legal system and to have been found not guilty, and yet we charge them as being guilty from a cultural perspective, there's an accounting I think we need to weigh on that, because ask yourself if that had been you and not him. But the other horror of this is, and setting aside the larger issue, for the record, setting aside the larger issue of whether or not she represented someone who had been found guilty. The entire legal system that we exist on is that the proof of, proof of burden is placed upon the state or the crown to prove you guilty. And if you don't have someone defending your interests, you're making a very brave and perhaps fallacious assumption that the state, the government, never makes a mistake. I like to think most of the time they don't. But none of us wants to be the exception that proves the rule. And so defense lawyers, of which in this congregation there are a number of highly, highly known and highly respected defense criminal attorneys, are essential cogs in the system that we live in and trust because they hold the, they hold the authority that has maximum power, the state, they hold them to account that they must prove beyond reasonable doubt that what they're accusing a person of is in fact what they did. And so to point the finger at the person who represents somebody that holds the state to that litmus, to that level, and say that they're going to cancel that person, It's a scary moment. You know, there are generally, when it comes to a human condition, there are generally two concepts of time. One concept of time was, was given over to us by the Greek philosopher. His name was Heraclitus. Heraclitus is famous for lots of things, but in particular, most famously for, you know, the idea of dipping your toe into the river and never touching the same drop of water again, meaning that time is ever flowing, rushing by us, that whatever happens in the moment will never happen again. It's ever flowing, ever passing. And there is another concept of time, which is anti-Heraclitian, which is the absolute opposite of what Heraclitus is saying. And the other idea of time, the opposite of what Heraclitus is saying, is the idea of frozen time that we are forever captive of a particular moment of time in our life, and that is whatever forever you are defined by it. 
what's that great story from the, um, from the first, from the elderly George Bush from his administration. He had a, um, a secretary of labor, I believe, who had been found, he was indicted, excuse me, for corruption charges. He obviously resigned his position. He went to court and defended himself. He was found not guilty. And he, there he was standing on the steps of the courthouse in Washington, D.C., surrounded by an absolute gaggle of reporters. And one of them said, what are you going to do now? And the secretary responded to him by saying, I'd like to know where I can go to get my name back. That's the anti-Heraclitian view of time, how things get frozen. This week, I was uh, completing my, uh, my class from uh, Sefer Shoftim, from the Book of Judges. If you haven't read the Book of Judges, I highly recommend it. It's fantastic reading. Um, many of the great stories that we have in our modern culture were plucked to and reinterpreted from the Book of Judges. In particular, last week, this past week, excuse me, we did, uh, uh, we did a review of Shimshon HaGibor, Samson the Mighty. To read the story of Shimshon of Samson is to read a story of a person who suffered utter failures. I, I mean, he was indiscriminate on a personal level with his choice of women, with his voracious appetites, with his unbridled approach to handling human affairs. And yet, the only thing that seems to save him time and time again is the supernatural strength that he was given at birth. And yet, over and again, despite the strength that he has, he is a failure. We see it repeatedly. And that Shimshon only becomes the person that we understand about and read in our Bible is at the denouement, it is at the last moment of his life when he is absolutely stripped of his strength because Delilah cuts his hair. He has no more strength. His eyes are gouged out by the Philistines who had captured him. They bring him out into the courtyard of the palace and they make him dance in order to humiliate him. Ah, oh, this was Samson the Mighty. Now look at him. He's a showgirl. And in that feebled, broken moment, Shimshon says, Zachreni Adonai, remember me, God. Don't remember me for all the bad things I did. Remember me for the good. By extension, you should know that the words that Shimshon spoke in the last moments of his life are the words that we repeat over Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur over and over again. Remember me. And in that last moment of his life, yes, Shimshon, Samson, musters the strength because his hands are placed on the pillars of the palace and he brings down the palace, destroying the palace and all the people within it, taking the Philistines with him. But that's not the great moment of his life. The great moment of his life is just before it where he realizes that the strength of his life is not what was on the outside, but it was what was on the inside. 
And it's interesting to note as you read and see that story is that it is not unique that the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, is filled time and time again with the story of human beings, people who we refer to as heroes, giborim, as heroes. But they are abject records of human failure. And there is none greater than what we read this morning, that of Yaakov, that of Jacob. Think about his life. He deceives his brother in taking the birthright away. By record, you should understand that Rashi, the great biblical commentator, has a slightly, he offers a different interpretation. He says, you know, when you stuff things into a bottle, the thing that goes in first comes out last. So Jacob was born last. He came out of the womb last. So he says, well, maybe he was actually conceived first, which is a nice way of interpreting it. But the truth of the matter is he wasn't the firstborn. So Jacob steals the firstborn by deceiving his father. He gains the, the uh, anonymity and rage of his brother. He runs away for his life. He loses his home. And then as we read this morning, he goes to sleep while on the run. And he dreams a remarkable dream. He dreams of Jacob's ladder, angels coming and going from heaven to earth. And God makes great promises to him of what he could be. And then Jacob goes to his uncle's home, where he is mightily deceived. He is exploited by his uncle over and over again. And then through the deceptions, Jacob also finds love. He finds his wives. He builds a family. He has children. The story of Jacob's life is a man on the run. When you're on the run, you lose things. But when you lose things, your heart opens. Throughout biblical literature, particularly amongst the prophet Hosea, Hosea, the name Jacob is often used as a metaphor for people who lie and deceive. But the Jacob that we understand was that thing in that moment, but the person that he became later on in his life was the absolute, absolute opposite of who he was in the beginning that through the tearing and loss of life, that Jacob began to develop and grow into the person that he ultimately became, which is to say that the hero of the biblical story is not the person who never makes an error, is not the person who fails, but it is precisely the person who fails. But they get up, and they're determined to learn from it. It's not that we are frozen in time. But like Heraclides, we realize that our life has a flow to it, a flow that we pray that through loss and learning that we develop strength and that we grow. It's one of the great failures, great failures, of the culture that we live in. If you have time to read, Arthur Miller wrote a book called The Crucible, which is about witch hunting. It happens every once in a while. And <laughs> in human culture. It happened in the 50s during, during the McCarthy era. We're in a period of witch hunting now. I remember reading years ago, there was a, a highly, highly renowned, great rabbinic scholar, very, very well known in the Orthodox world, sadly, sadly not so well, well known, 
outside of the Orthodox world. His name was Rav Hutner. Hutner once published a letter. Back then, people wrote letters, they didn't send emails so much, and it was very, very common for rabbinic leaders and other great Jewish leaders to receive letters from people seeking personal advice or had philosophical questions, and the people would keep these letters. And so later on, the letter that between this great rabbi and this young student was published, and here's what the student said to him. The student said that he wanted to leave his studies, his rabbinical studies, because after hearing Rav Hutner give a speech, he realized that he would never become or even come close to what this Rabbi Hutner actually is. So in the reply to the letter, Rav Hutner writes the following. He says, if you had known me when I was your age, you would have never thought that. The task of our life is not to see us where we are. The task of our life is not to judge people about where they are. The task of our life is to be curious about what can come next. Shabbat Shalom.